16, Genesis chapter 16, which is to be found on page 16 of the uh, Church Bible. If you're new here this morning, uh, we're going through the book of Genesis, and uh, we've been in the book of Genesis since last September, and we're reaching chapter 16, and uh, another important uh, chapter in this uh, story of Abraham and Sarah. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children, go sleep with my maidservant, perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why this well was called Bealehi Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son. Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is God's word. May it be a blessing to us uh, as we turn to it now. If you uh, take the road north from Cairo in Egypt to Alexandria, the journey will take you about three hours. And about halfway down or up that road on the right-hand side, uh, there is a, a farm stroke retreat centre called Anaphora. Uh, it's owned by the Coptic community in Egypt, 
And it's a place where uh, Christians and those who are on the way to faith and those who've lost their faith, it's just an amazing place to go. And I went there a few years ago and the memory is still rich in my mind. The, the buildings are being constructed in the form of a question mark. So they take you up on the roof when you arrive and uh, you can see the architecture very plainly, the way they're laid out. And the dot of the question mark is the church. If you approach the entrance to the church, it wouldn't work at Muckley. There are just loads of shoes outside because that's what you do inside this particular building. Well, we could do it, but it would take us longer in and out. Um, when you come into the church, and uh, this was a nighttime shot, I've got another time with the daytime shot, they've built into the ceiling above the altar at the front of the church a, a glass panel in the shape of an eye. That's what you see there. Uh, at night time you can see through this eye the, uh, the stars that are shining and in the daytime I've got a daytime shot where sunlight shafts just come down and uh, hit the communion table. It's a symbol to them of the God who sees, the God who never sleeps, the God whose eye is never shut, whose ear is never deaf, the God who sees and hears. It's a wonderful illustration of the passage that we're looking at this morning. You picked up at the end, didn't you, what Hagar said. Um, she's allowed, not many people are allowed to give God a name, but she's allowed in her worship after all that God has done for this vulnerable per person to say, you are the God who sees. You saw me. You heard me in the moment of my need. So I want us to look at this passage and to discover something for our own personal benefit as individuals and as a church about the God who sees us and hears us. And here's the first thing in verses 1 to 3. God sees and answers our questions. You see, the chapter 16 opens with a big question. The big question is, where's the boy? What boy, you say? Well, the boy that's been promised to Abraham. Chapter 15 He's been promised an heir, uh, an heir, a son will come out of your body. And out of this person will come, he takes him outside, and he asks Abraham to look at the night sky. He says, count the stars. He said, well, I can't exactly. That's how many your descendants will be. So chapter 16 opens. Ten years has gone by. The lady Sarah is 75. Abraham's 85. The question is, where's the boy? And here's the other question. We know who the father's going to be, but at this point we don't know who the mother's going to be. If you look across to chapter 17 and verse 15, it's only a chapter later that Sarah's identified as the mother. That's when her name has changed from Sarai to Sarah. So the question is, where's the boy? And she believes that somehow God is responsible for this. That's why the Lord has prevented her, she says. The Lord has closed my womb in that I cannot have this child. That's another question. So then what happens is uh, you'll understand that it's going to take a miracle for this child to be born to this old couple. And only faith understands how miracles operate. You need to have Faith in God's word because he's spoken and he means it. And secondly, you have to give God time. 
But what Sarah does at this moment, I believe out of love for Abraham, she moves from faith to reason. She has reasoned that the promise has come to Abraham, so she doesn't share in that promise yet. The mother hasn't been named. That will happen later. And in the law of the ancestral period that they lived in, um, whilst monogamy, one man, one woman, lifetime, was normal, if a woman wasn't able to bear a child, then you could take a concubine. In this case, they've got this woman that they acquired when they were in Egypt. She's a slave woman. And therefore, you can take this person, and she can, by law, the three of them are not doing anything wrong here. It may seem strange to our eyes, but by law, she can now become the surrogate mother. So what she does, she takes this servant, Hagar, and puts her into the arms of Abraham and says, be husband and wife, for the purpose of bringing someone into the world, a child, so that I can start to build a family. Nothing wrong has been done at this moment. Not in law. The only thing that's been done wrong is that she stepped out of how God is going to perform this amazing miracle. So we open the first few verses with questions. And my question to you, I suppose, is this. Who do you identify with most? Because each of these three people are saying, have you forgotten me? Sarah's saying, have you forgotten me? Abraham is saying, have you forgotten me? You promised me a son, so where is that son? And Hagar is saying, have you forgotten me? Why is she saying that? At no point in this story do Abraham and Sarah actually call her Hagar. As far as they're concerned, she's just an instrument. She's a mechanical means whereby a family can be started in this family. The only person who names her, apart from the writer, is this angel of God that we meet. It's a a feature of life, isn't it, that uh, if we actually want to use people, it's best that we don't name them. Let's talk about the post. Let's talk... uh, It gets really complicated if we bring people into this. That's what's happening right here. So the big question is, who do you identify with most? With Sarah, with Abraham, or with Hagar? All of whom are saying, have you forgotten me? Look at the next few verses from verse 4. Here we see another thing, and that is the God who hears and sees our conflicts. A volcanic conflict erupts in the house, because this is the first marriage triangle in the Bible. Three are now involved in this marriage, and it's become very crowded. And all three, at this moment, behave in a bad way. Hagar becomes proudly pregnant. She's the one who uses her pregnancy to triumph over childless Sarah. There's an arrogant confidence that threatens the stability of this home. In the way the law operates, she's allowed to be a concubine, but she must never become a wife. And Abraham behaves irresponsibly, in that he abdicates all responsibility. He actually says to his wife words like this, you put her into my arms, I now put her back into your hands. Where's the man who built an altar at the important stages in the way? The Bible simply says he agreed to go along with what Sarai proposed. He can actually quote from the ancient law, the Code of Hammurabi, Law 146. This is our hero. 
A hero who puts his walking boots on and goes out when God calls him, chapter 12. Our hero who builds altars all along the way. Our generous hero who says, Lot, you choose first. Our mighty general who goes out and takes on the kings and chases them away. This is Abraham at one of the low points in his life. And what about Sarah, who treats Hagar, the slave girl, harshly? The word there is aggressive humiliation every day. She draws God into it and says, As God is my judge, Abraham, and Abraham was at fault here, do something. Say to this woman who's now pregnant, she's only a concubine, she mustn't play the role of wife, but he doesn't. You put her into my arms, and I now put her back into your hands. As I ponder this passage, I have sympathy with Sarah because working on reason, not by faith, she sacrificed a very precious intimacy with Abraham. For love's sake, she allowed violence to be done to love. But she was wrong. Abraham was wrong for advocating. Hagar was wrong for behaving triumphantly. Sarah is wrong. And at the end of the day, we know what happens. God hears and sees all this conflict. She runs. There was a moment in my life when I felt like doing a runner. I had applied to what was then called voluntary service overseas to work in Africa, and they turned me down. And a few months later, I applied uh, for training to be a Baptist minister, and they turned me down. And I began to look overseas for positions. I just couldn't wait to get away. I felt the shame, the embarrassment, and the, the sense of rejection. Many of you have been there. It's the most natural thing to do a runner. Psalm 139 is probably everybody's one of their favorite psalms. And you know where he says, if I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, what's the phrase? Even there. And I suppose I would say to you this morning, as I've had to sometimes say to my heart, where's your even there? But when I seek to fly away from the responsibility, to move away from this situation, this conflict, this mess that has gone so badly wrong, if I take the wings and fly, even there, he's with me. That's where the story turns next. If you pick it up at verse 7, you'll see that the God who sees our questions is the God who sees our conflicts and now he sees our vulnerability. This is probably the most vulnerable portrait of an individual in Genesis. It's probably only mirrored by the vulnerability of Joseph when we'll meet him later on in the 30 chapters. This slave woman has travelled on a desert road for many miles because we know this place called Shur is quite away from the home of Abraham and Sarah. So we just know geographically she's travelled miles. She must feel a deep sense of injustice that she's been used by this family who can't even remember her name. And she's now on the run. She's in a very serious situation because if you're a runaway slave, then in law, if you go back, that can be very dangerous. She's in a vulnerable position physically. This is a caravan trail, ancient caravan trail. Any band of bandits, robbers can take her and use her and abuse her and discard her. She is a no person on the way to nowhere. Spiritually, she's very vulnerable. No record up to this moment of her having any relationship with God. Not like Abraham and Sarah. 
They've been specially chosen, specially spoken to, special moments. Not this woman. Can you see the vulnerability? On a desert road, pregnant, feeling a sense of injustice, spiritually lonely. And then we have these amazing verses. How the angel of the Lord finds her by the living well. See, God has heard and seen everything. As I was sitting there during communion, and no pastor, Andy, knows he's a fantastic pastor, he knows something about all of us. But you know, the best pastor doesn't know absolutely as much as God knows about you. And I wondered as I sat there during communion, is it possible, Lord, that these verses, out of everything that we say this morning, somebody will find themselves in the person of Hagar? You will sit there this morning and say, I may be rich, I may be wealthy, I may be healthy, but I'm Hagar. There is a vulnerability about me, and I need to be assured that God sees and hears me in that vulnerability. You've got this wonderful phrase, the angel of the Lord. It's the first time it appears in the Old Testament. It's going to appear about 60 times. It's not like the angel Gabriel. That's an angel who comes as a messenger. This isn't a messenger. How do we know that? Well, the language and especially the response of Hagar. This, my friends, is a representation of God himself. You know that Jesus was born, the word became flesh in Bethlehem. Well, there are moments when there are shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, where the second person of the Trinity appears. This is one such moment. It's very Jesus-like, as he was with the woman at the well. Here's another woman, as another well. To be personal and call her by name. The one thing Abraham and Sarah haven't done. He names her. He knows all about her. You're Hagar, you're a servant girl, you come from the household of Sarah. That's a very personal approach. And the tender questioning, where have you come from, which she already knows, and where are you going? She knows the first answer. I've come from my mistress Sarah, from whom I'm running away. She doesn't answer the second question. She knows her recent history. She hasn't got a clue about her future. And this tender approach, this personal approach, is the angel of the Lord, who now is going to take charge of this mess, because it is a mess. A pregnant woman, a vulnerable slave, a vulnerable trapper, and everything else I've said to you. Somebody, the angel of the Lord, God himself needs to step in and bring order to this situation. And he does. Well, as you say, first of all, he says, I give you a command, go back and submit. What kind of command is that? To send her back, this vulnerable person, into a dangerous place? Well, as we know, it won't be dangerous. It's the safest place for her to be. Why? A, she belongs there. B, she's owned by them. C, the father of the house has made her pregnant. It's in this family that she's going to find security for her and her son. It's God bringing order into a situation. It's utterly sound, common sense and God's sense that she does this. But then he does something more. He gives her a promise. Singles are out. Most promises in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis are given to the patriarchs. She's a matriarch. She's the only matriarch who's given a promise. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all told that the people that are going to come out of your family are going to be countless. You can't count the stars, stars in the sky or the dust on the earth. That's how many people will come out of your family. She's given us another promise. That out of this mess, there is going to be a blessing. That out of this mess, there is going to come uh, so many things that will be a blessing to her personally. But God only gives her a promise. He also gives her a word of knowledge. You see, she didn't know in answer to the question, where are you going? I don't have a future. Oh, yes, you do, said God. Word of knowledge number one, the baby you're carrying is a boy. Word of knowledge number two, you're going to call him Ishmael. Why? Well, the word Ishmael means God hears. Ishmael. God's word name is built into the very name of this boy. That means as he grows up, and she has to, like all bums, call him in or call him down from a tree or whatever his name's called, she will remember, Ishmael, God hears. God heard me and he still hears me. It's built into this family. And then she gives uh, God, the angel of the Lord, gives information that if you were a mum or dad, probably they would rather not hear. This boy you're carrying that you're going to call Ishmael, he's going to be a wild donkey. He's really going to cause trouble in this family. You won't be able to contain him. He'll want his freedom. He will be the original Bedouin. I've met Bedouins. I took a horse ride once with a Bedouin as I drove, as I rode back from Petra. And uh, he told me all about the life of the Bedouin. This Bedouin, Ishmael, is going to be a skilled archer. It will make him a good hunter. But he will not enjoy living in towns and cities and villages. He wants to be out in the open air under the stars. It's an amazing word of knowledge because modern-day Arabs will look back, many of them, and say, Ishmael is the father of our nation. That's why when this little word of knowledge concludes, uh, the writer says there will be forever hostility between you and your brethren. That means the Arab and Jew hostility goes back to this particular moment. And he becomes a very fruitful man, and this woman, Hagar, is going to become a very busy grandma. Genesis 25, 12 princes are born to Ishmael. And they are men of note in their time, but they don't become anything more after their time. They're not part of this great Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob story, which makes them alike to the nations in the family tree of Jesus. People who are part of the story of salvation, our story. So Ishmael doesn't have that track to follow, but he does have a life. She has a life. It's a fruitful life. God sees and hears. And it's the one who can bring order where there's been chaos. I don't know who it is this morning, but I just felt as I sat there, Lord, there is a Hagar here. And number one, male or female, you need to know God has heard and seen. And he's the one, if you follow his instructions, he can bring order where there's been this mess. He can bring promises. He can tell you something about the future that will mean that out of this mess, something good will come. But look at how the story develops in those verses, verses uh, 13. God hears and sees our worship, not only our vulnerability. I was at an 80th birthday party yesterday. Some of you may know uh, one of our Devon Baptist pastors, David Lewis. Well, he was 80 yesterday, and uh, it was a great day. Uh, one or two people looked up Bible things to find out 
what does the Bible say about eating? Well, there's a little bit about Methuselah who went on to live into the 900s. Uh, there was a little reference to 80 concubines, which we didn't think was very relevant to uh, an 80-year-old. Great Psalm 90 about uh, you do well if you live to 70, and it's a bonus if you live to 80. We had a wonderful, um, his future daughter-in-law is going to be Jerry Latty. Uh, if you know Spring Harness, you may have had the experience of um, Jerry as a worship leader. She and her husband-to-be, Carey, uh, sang a wonderful modern version of Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And when they came uh, to sing the chorus at the very end, they personalised it. This is your story. This is your song. For 80 years, you've been praising the Lord all the day long. It was great. David, I think I made a note of how many days he's been on earth, something like 29,200. Now, he didn't recall every one of those 29,200 days. Uh, he was born in Jersey, and uh, our treasurer, Tony Green, told me afterwards that his um, aunt and David Luce's mum are somehow related, which was interesting. David told us how he remembers, as a boy, four-year-old, having to hang uh, out of the window he was more than four, but he hang out of the window when the Germans arrived on Jersey, white towels. The families had to show all the families on Jersey, we surrender. And he did highlight some of the momentous days, some of the Good Fridays, and some of the Easter days of his 80 years on earth. Why do I tell you this? These verses here are Hagar marking a very momentous day in her life. She is the one who says in these verses, forever I will remember you're the God who sees me. And because of this I'm going to name this well, the well of the God who sees me well. She's worshipping the God of grace who's come to her in all her vulnerability and given her a hope and a future. Do you mark in any way the special days? Do you put down somewhere that verse just left out, it became so special? Do you mark the hymn that has spoken to you, the song that has blessed you, the day? Mark them down. It's a worship moment. Put them in a file somewhere, because on a dark day you need to get them out and you say, on that day, God saw me and heard me. On that day he gave me a promise. On that day, he told me a little bit about the future that I need to know about. We need to be worshippers. And here's the final thing from this passage. Verses 15 and 16. Hagar gives birth, and then Abraham named Ishmael. Abraham is 86. What's the most important things of verses 15 and 16? The most important thing of verses 15 and 16 is that... Um, Sarah's name is not mentioned at this particular point. But what a family mess we've got. We've got uh, two women who don't get on, so it makes the atmosphere very tense. Abraham caught in the middle. He must have been walking on eggshells. Is he free to show affection to the boy Ishmael? Can he express his care to Hagar? Hagar must have felt very insecure. And by the time we get to Chapter 25, when the baby Isaac, the child of grace, promised to Abraham and Sarah, is born, immediately there's conflict between Isaac and Ishmael. 
So it's a bit of a mess. So why did we put up as the last point? God hears and sees us growing in grace. Where on earth can you say Abraham and Sarah are growing in grace? See, Satan comes and whispers in their ears and ours, even this morning, for this family mess. Nobody can ever come back from a family mess like this. It's a lie. Abraham, Sarah and Abraham were growing in grace. If you read 1 Peter chapter 3, she's held up as one of the holy women who was a model for women everywhere at all times to say, just look at Sarah. Romans chapter 4, look at Abraham. Galatians chapter 4, look at the story of Hagar, Samuel, and uh, Hagar, Abraham, and Sarah. These three are put together, buried into Galatians 4 to say, out of this mess, good can come. God can use it as a teaching moment. So I'll tell you where they're growing in grace. And that's why we mustn't rush into chapter 17 or say to others, what on earth is this story doing there? I'll tell you what it's doing there. It's the purpose of grace. Do you understand the purpose of grace in your own life? Great book written many years ago by Jim Packer called Knowing God. Towards the end, he has this wonderful section of the purpose of grace. Number one purpose of grace, to restore your relationship to God because it was broken. And this table reminds us of how that relationship was restored. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could now have the resurrection life released into our own lives by the Holy Spirit. That's the restoration of grace. The image that was defaced begins to be cleaned gradually so the image of Christ begins to shine forth in your life. But then there's growing in grace. And there's a huge amount devoted to growing in grace. What is growing in grace? Growing in the knowledge of God. What kind of God is it that has been kind to me, has heard me and seen me? Growing in fellowship with God, loving him, knowing him, serving him. And how does God help us to grow in grace? By what we're doing this morning, understanding his word. By what we're doing this morning, worshipping. By what we're doing afterwards, fellowshipping together. But I'll tell you the biggest way whereby we grow in grace through the experiences of life. Where does it say in the Bible, Jesus says, come and follow me and I will wrap you up in cotton wool. Find the verse and come and show it to me afterwards. It doesn't exist. He does say, pick up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, there will be no protection. He doesn't step in to stop this family called Sarah and Abraham making a mistake, ruining somebody else's life. He doesn't do that. But what he does do when these people come back into their senses and they say, Lord, we should never have done that, he restores them. That's growing in grace. Sarah was hasty and she was harsh, and so am I sometimes. Abraham was somebody who abdicated responsibility. He should have stepped in, but he didn't. And that's me sometimes. And if you are honest before God at this table, it's also you. And what do I do when those moments happen? When I'm Abraham, Sarah, and everybody else in the scripture that does bad things. I come and say, Lord, I want you to restore me by your grace. Please forgive me. Acker says somewhere in the book, the person who has never made a mistake never makes anything. It's a Christian life. The Christian life is not one beginning. It's a story of many new beginnings, like today. You can begin again today. You can be restored by grace today. 
That's why I love this particular photograph. This bunch of flowers, in fact, is a, uh, is a set of ink blots. And what the artist has done, he's, he's designed it in such a way, he's artistically shaped it in such a way that something beautiful comes out of these ink blots. And I looked at that in preparation. My prayer for you and me was this, make something beautiful out of the ink blots of my life. Because you're the God of grace. You are the God who sees and hears every situation that's here. So enough trying to sort out my own mess. Come back to the Lord. Get into that way of faith, which is what Sarah and Abraham did. Hagar was blessed. Abraham and Sarah were blessed. And we can be blessed as well. And that's what I want to pray right now. Lord, we're ordinary people, but we've been made extraordinary by the grace of God that has reached our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the Hagars who are here this morning, and if they've never had any previous relationship with you, may this be great music in their ears this morning to know that you hear and see, and you have a particular loving heart for the vulnerable. And for those of us who feel more like Sarah and Abraham and feel we've messed up big time, we pray right now that your restoring grace would enable us to be bold enough to say, I've been wrong, please forgive me. But above all, Lord, give me a new beginning. So help me to move on wiser, stronger, more dependent on you. Bind our wandering hearts to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.